Welcome to another edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 556. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. I'm Gavin Ashenden, and it's Friday the 13th of December 2019. Feast of St. Lucian, one day after the great English election. Okay, this is going to be a really fun episode of Anglican Unscripted, episode 556, because we've done it, we're going to do this with no pre-show. I've told the guys, you know, set up, comb your hair, brush your teeth, turn your equipment on, and we're just going to go. And I think we do some of our best episodes with the the, the least amount of preparation and, uh, or perspiration, whatever. And so we'll find out if that's true today. Before we get started, do you guys have an honor and a duty as viewers and that's to like the show on facebook and youtube to share it with your friends and enemies don't forget the enemies uh to subscribe if you've not subscribed go to that youtube you see that red little rectangle says subscribe if it's not red you are subscribed but if it's still, oops sorry if it's still red click the red and a little bell will pop up and click the bell and you will get instant notifications whenever there is a new episode of anglican tv you know, the world changed overnight, and I think uh, we'll talk about uh, politics, Anglican politics. Anglican, by definition, means of England. And so let's talk a little bit about the election uh, that happened over in England, uh, where Boris has retaken conservative control uh, of the government and kind of the implications short-term and long-term. And... I don't think he's another Margaret Thatcher, but let's talk about that as well. Gavin, are congratulations in order? <laughs> oh, they are. I'm a bit tired because I stayed up to watch what happened. And I mean, the good news, first of all, is we're not going to become another Venezuela under yeah. Corbyn. So that's very good news. Uh, the, 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 the very good news is that Corbyn, the baby killer and Jew hater, is not in charge. Thank God. I mean, really, thank God. Um, I think I'm a bit disappointed from a spiritual point of view that um, because we should, we should do metaphysics more than we should do politics, that the people weren't more appalled by the abortion laws that, that the Conservatives were going to bring in. The Liberal Democrat leader, a woman called Joe Swinton, was asked um, on the radio, on the BBC News, our listeners will understand the importance of this, if she believed there was a difference between men and women, she wouldn't say that there was. She had completely swallowed the trans rhetoric. And then it was turned out that her political her party had been given millions of pounds by a pharmaceutical company that creates the drugs for these poor children. So the level of moral corruption was really very high. And, but I wish that we had heard from the public a greater distress about abortion and greater distress about anti-Semitism, because I think those were the two spiritual issues. And the it's problem... Something, <laughs> nobody, well, I, nobody... I, I, want, I want to agree with you here, because here in America, the governor of Virginia is about to sign a law that allows abortion through labor. Oh, my word. I, you, you just... It's unfathomable the, the, the massacre we're going to uh, continue to put on 
uh, unborn generations. And so, but there's no press. I, I read about this in a, in a Virginia news blog from the Democrats who were excited about, it. oh boy, look at this. And I'm like, this is getting no press anywhere. I, Americans and uh, citizens of Earth should be absolutely horrified. We should be horrified about about the murder of children. I mean, uh, 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 those people with the sensitivity to abortion have been saying this for a long time. But, but you know, it becomes perfectly clear from what you've just been describing how murderous the law has become to children. But 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 also this the dreadful dreadful things we're doing through uh, the whole trans debate, and everyone is too scared to say anything. Can I urge your readers, our readers, our friends? To, to read at the very least the last chapter of Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds. I've been listened to I've listened to it three times now on audiobook because I did a lot of driving to France and back. And the reason I listened to it three times was because it, it, it took that amount of time for me to get my head in this different shape that's required to understand what's been going on theologically and spiritually. And it is uh, well, we're on the hour again. Sorry, it's going to go get exciting yeah, right here in a minute. Um, but but so this is all linking in with the election still because uh, although we got upset about Brexit and about the economy and, and promises made that will or won't be kept, there's very little sign that the public have recovered any sense of uh, theological or spiritual or moral insight in order to deal with the really dreadful agenda that's that's being forced upon the West and is attempting to destroy the Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, um, George, from my, you know, history and understanding, we've lost the middle of politics. There's nobody in the middle. There's no moderates anymore. It's all this way or it's all this way. Um, and both parties have changed what they stand for, at least here in America. I don't know uh, about in Britain around the world, but uh, a, a Democrat, uh, a Democratic candidate does not stand for what he stood for in the 1970s. And a Republican candidate doesn't stand for what they stood for in the 1950s. A lot has changed over time. And a lot of it is the adoption of what society or, or the press says is popular transgenderism, abortion, um, social justice warriors, and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure you've seen this as well, George. Yes, um, on one level, the uh, the Democratic Party traditionally have been the party of the poor and the, and the working class. And today in the United States, that's predominantly the Republican Party. I live in a poor county uh, that is 95% white. Um, it's representative of, uh, it's the southern tip of Appalachia, if you will. This county went 70% for Donald Trump uh, at the 2016 election, and I assume will go even stronger next time around. Up until the recent times, this was part of uh, the solid Dixie South, the yeah. Democrats, where the Republicans didn't even run candidates. We see this in the British election, where labor uh, working class voters uh, I think a major. Uh, I think the largest uh, group of working class voters voters voted for the Conservative Party. So we're seeing a uh, economic shift um, where the Democrats in the United States and New Labour in in England are the 
are the party of aggrieved minorities and of the uh, establishment and of the plutocrats and the Republicans or conservatives, however you wish to describe it, are the parties of the rest of the country. So we're seeing that taking place. But uh, at the same token, on your question about the death of the middle, I don't ever believe there really ever was a middle. I think we've always, what's, what we've had death of is of compromise. Uh, people are weaponizing their political opinions such that they cannot compromise or they're afraid of being uh, dismissed from politics. There was a case of a liberal Democrat standing for office who was already a sitting MP whose party dumped him because he was a Roman Catholic and supported and did not support the abortion agenda. Now that sort of thing of atomizing, or no, no that's not the right Close word, politicizing, yeah. politicizing every aspect of life is what's destroying the middle used to be people could disagree uh, in uh, charity and with one another, but that that's going far farther and farther away. I'd, well, I'd like to take that point. Sorry, Kevin, sure, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go. Uh, you, I have to remember the guy's name, so you you talk your point. <laughs> I can't remember his name either, but I want to talk about him a bit because I think it's emblematic of what we're dealing with. Um, so, he, as George quite rightly said, there was a sitting Liberal Democrat MP who was dumped because he was views on abortion as Roman Catholic. Now at this point, the whole Christian community and Jewish community, maybe even Muslim community in this country, all, all people within uh, the monotheistic tradition ought to have banded together and said, this is a most terrible development because what it really means is that, that anybody with some form of, of uh, moral conviction that springs from their worldview or their religion uh, is excommunicated from the democratic process. This should have caused such annoyance and anxiety to the, first of all, to the whole church, but but not a word from the Archbishop of Canterbury, who should have been first there, or from the bishops, or from the clergy. Not a word, because it was abortion. And again, I'm although people have mentioned in their comments last week, they thought I was a bit forthright about my, my concerns that about the impact of feminism on the church. But I, I'm quite convinced that one of the reasons why abortion is untouchable is because of the level of feminist clergy who have been brought up for this to be a, a watchword of their own, uh, their own permissive uh, moral um, framework. So it strikes me that, that at a critical moment like this, if this liberal democrat can be dumped for these views, the church is morally bankrupt until it realizes that, that not its views on abortion, it's symptomatic of something much wider. It's, it's capacity to have freedom of speech. And without freedom of speech, you cannot tell people about Jesus. So th this, this goes to the very heart of the freedom of our society. And although not many people would have noticed this liberal Democrat Catholic being dumped, uh, it's, um, it's a hugely significant moment in the struggle for freedom in the West. Okay, I remember the guy's name, Tip O'Neill. Yeah. Back in the, <laughs> in, in the days of 80 politics, uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, nemesis was Tip O'Neill. He was, uh, uh, I forget what his role was in Congress. Speaker um, of the House. Speaker of the Democrat House, thank you. Yeah. And uh, so newly elected Ronald Reagan and uh, newly, not newly, uh, old arch uh, enemy, longtime Democrat Tip O'Neill came to head to head many times. And 
Tip O'Neill tells a story uh, before they uh, allowed Ronald Reagan's uh, tax reforms to come in where he was called into the office in the White House, uh, the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan. They sat down and over the course of 45 minutes, uh, Ronald Reagan convinced Tip O'Neill that it's time for tax cuts by helping Tip O'Neill fall in love with the American ideal again and not politics. And they came to a middle ground. And I was watching this interview a long time ago with Tip O'Neill. I'm like, you know, we've lost that. We don't have this middle ground where we're even willing to talk on the issues. That you are just, you are phobied. You are hated for what you think. And so I'm not going to talk to you. And uh, by adding the fear element to our conversations, we will no longer be able to have a middle ground. And, and the reason for it is is because it's, our culture has been driven by by this cultural Marxism. Now, this is not me going off on my favorite topic, but but it's a sense that what's happened is, for a long while, we drunk deep of the wells of Christian charity. Uh, the the whole a whole system of etiquette was about the strong looking after the weak, actually treating privilege as responsibility. That was how Christians deal with privilege. We turn it into responsibility for others. And with the coming of this neo-Marxist agenda, everything has been reduced to the language of power. And what that means is that, that if two people are arguing, it becomes literally a power struggle. Well, there is no middle ground. It's like it's like saying there should be a middle ground in chess, <laughs> some area where you could rest a while while the other person recuperates and scratches their head. But of course, there's no middle ground in chess because you're about out to destroy your opponent. Well, what, what neo-Marxism has done is to introduce into our culture an atmosphere where opponents are out to destroy one another. Well, there is no compromise. There is no middle ground. And, and the other the other element that I've become increasingly aware of is the level to which narcissism has replaced generosity. So again, the great Christian virtue is agape, the, 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 the selfless love of the other. What we found ourselves dealing with in the last 20 years is this growth of narcissism, both as a cultural and a psychological facet. I don't know quite how it started, but certainly social media and mental illness have played a part in fueling each other. And the whole and the trans element is it's is it's apotheosis it's it's it the moment when it reaches its full blownness but because of this narcissism uh rather like a spoiled child if if i'm a narcissist and you don't give me what i want well it must be because you hate me because if you loved me you'd give me what i want so in a narcissistic culture any refusal to do what i want is experienced as hate and i think that's one of the, that's the theological or the psychological reason why all this shouting and crying and accusing of hate is taking place. And if, like me, you've been scratching your head and say, well, wait a moment, how, how did you suddenly escalate this into something psychologically so nuclear? I think the answer is because that's how narcissists experience being blocked. And we live in, we live in this culture that has been subsumed into narcissism. And I think one of the things I would want to say as a Christian is, if you'll only give me my freedom of speech back, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus who will who will let your old self die. <laughs> the narcissist in you will die and something new will come to life. We have the antidote to this as Christians, but we've been silenced and therefore we can't bring uh, people back to life. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase. I'll finish here and <laughs> give you guys a chance. No, no, no. no. You're doing fine. Anti this is what people tune into this program for is, you know, 
the three of us coming up with a semi-reasonable uh, discussion of the politics and the religiosity of the day. And we do a good job at that. This comes, thank you very much, Kevin. This comes from Ab Antony the Great. Abba Antony was a an Egyptian who decided that, that uh, life Cairo was too noisy and corrupt in the third, second, third and fourth century. So he went to pray in the desert and he began the monastic movement because people realized the struggle was one of that required prayer rather than politics. And in the fourth century, Antony wrote this, a time is coming when men will go mad and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you're mad, you're not like us. He's describing what we've come to in our society today. Sure. I think. Well, the, the question is then, what is the antidote? And how, how do we go forward from here? And for me, it's the, the work of the church is the work in the parish. And that when you bring people and, and nurture them into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that falls away is this narcissistic worldview. Mm. And you get them alive to the love of their neighbor because of the God's love for them. And in one sense, what national church leaders do is really irrelevant to the work of the parish. And because the only way around this is basically one person at a time coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and coming together in community and nurturing each other within community. Uh, yeah. It's in a sense, this is what has been described as the Benedict option. Uh, by uh, American author Rod Dreher, it's not so much to wall oneself off away from the world, but rather within the world to live in community with like-minded people affirming each other in their faith, in their strength, in their walk, while we watch the rest of the world just collapse under its own way. Society will not allow me to have unconditional love for those who I do not affirm. I do not affirm the gay lifestyle, the trans lifestyle, uh, the drug culture, you just go on the list of greed. <laughs> it's well written all through Romans, what I don't agree with. Um, but I don't affirm it. But society and the media do not allow me to uh, have unconditional love for that which, with, which I will not affirm. And that's kind of the tragedy of modernity here. Well, I think... I well, George, I, I, I would make the distinction between affirmation and validation. Uh, at, we've lost that. Uh, as Gavin has pointed out, we've lost that. If there's any block to your own needs or desires, that's uh, considered a personal rebuff, which is translated into hatred. Mm -hmm. But the work of the church isn't to affirm people, but it's to validate their humanity through Christ. And in other words, te teach them and treat them with love and kindness, holy compassion is a phrase Gavin used in our last show, which is not the same thing as affirmation. That is why you can have a church that reaches out to people afflicted with drugs and pornography and so on and so forth. And you're not affirming them in that, but you're validating their humanity and you're validating whom God created them to be as you help them break free of those chains. And where does that work take place is where I'd like to say. It takes place in the home. It begins with a family. It begins in small community. It begins in the church. It begins in the pews. And one of the things that I am dis so disappointed about the leadership of our church, both 
the Anglican world and the and the general church world is how estranged and detached they are from the reality of life. We have Episcopal bishops who I'm sure they mean very well, but they'll issue statements about climate, climate change and gun violence and the immigrant crises and all well and good and their political opinions that are being uh, debated in the world, but we don't hear them with the same fervor or emphasis talk about salvation and regeneration. And I think, Gavin, you have a phrase that, uh, it's Ashenden's Law, I think we called it. The more, <laughs> a, the more a cleric talks about social justice, the less he knows about Jesus. Is that a fair uh, summation? Uh, yes, it is. I, I would, I, I tweeted it, uh, tweaked it a little bit to say that, um, uh, that is a law of inverse proportion, so that um, the 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 less he has experience of the of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and the less his life is rich spiritually, the more he will try and express his, his what he understands about his faith politically. So that that um, those who, you're quite right, George. Those who make most noise politically usually are people who pray least, know Jesus least, are born again least, and there's an element of of, of displacement and compensation. Compensation because if they had a life in the spirit, they wouldn't need to meddle in, in social affairs where you can achieve so little. And even if you achieve anything, it lasts only one generation. Uh, and the displacement because what we really should be doing is bringing people to Jesus. Uh, I, I was very proud of my wife who, who she's becoming a house cleaner. She, she cleans for, in order to help us pay the bills. And, um, one of the ladies she cleans with who has no experience at all of church uh, and is estranged from her, her parental family said, will you take me to church? <laughs> Out of the blue. Said, Can I come to church with you? You go to church, don't you? Is is that what makes you who you are? My wife said, yeah, it is. Can I come to church with you? Yeah, Yes, you can. And I was very proud of her because it's a long time since I've someone said to me for all my 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 loud mouthness on the internet it's a long time since someone said to me take me to church with you and i thought i thought in terms of the kingdom this was such an important thing to do and i remember um saying so often to my congregation in jersey look the way that the church grows is by you going out there and finding someone you love and you care for and asking them to come and meet jesus with you in church and and the churches would grow overnight if if, if, if members of the congregation took every opportunity they could after praying to carry people into worship. I mean, some will not like it, they won't get it, but others will be immediately struck by the presence of Christ. So the, the, we can do these things in a very straightforward way, but Dre, I'm glad you brought up Drea because Drea is, is right. We have, to, we have to retrench in order to deepen the roots of the Christian community so that we can reach outwards and draw people to something that, that's authentic and real. I, I did a wedding for a jet set couple while I was in St. Bart's and uh, uh, my children are proud to tell me, say that uh, the wedding, my wedding photos appeared in Harper's Bazaar. Uh, it was one of those sorts of weddings. And I, I mentioned in the past that I took it, the risk of uh, basically talking about Jesus, talking about God's love, talking about redemption and generation in my sermon a 15-minute sermon at a jet set wedding. And I had people in the, uh, after the service, I had people who I really didn't sort of expect as I looked at them. 
fashion designer types, um, uh, men with small men with tightly blazered jacket, tightly buttoned blazers, and little dogs under their arm, want to talk to me about Jesus Christ. And I guess where I'm coming with this is that it takes courage on our part uh, to face rejection, to face oh, well, these people, they just want to get in and out and get over to the party in time. But they, every opportunity that one has, one needs to push Christ. And Gavin's wife's experience really is normative in how Christian communities are grow and thrive. People want to know what is different about you, what helps you, and is this faith real? And my if you are my beef with the institutional church is that that is so far from the uh, center of their public image uh, as to make them meaningless. So in other words, what would the Archbishop of Canterbury's pronouncements on Brexit mean to the lady whose house your wife cleaned? Not a thing, but your, your, but your wife's faithful devotion and temperament and in the spirit that she recognized that dwelt within your wife, Gavin, a Gavin, was what brought her to ask that question. So, I mean, we're not, in, we're not inventing anything new here, folks. This is just the way it's supposed to work. Indeed. The first person I was aware of that I led to Christ all by accident no, uh, you know, intention on my part. Didn't even know it was something I, I could do or should do. Uh, back uh, when I was probably 20 years old. I'm going to, 19, 20, back in college days. Uh, my girlfriend's roommate was Jewish. And uh, just by being the Christian I was, failed, broken, and, and horrid at the time, uh, led her to an interest in Christianity and um, about four months after we met, I gave her the gospel message, the, the talk. Had no effect as far as I'm concerned, but apparently it did. Uh, and she came to Christ uh, through just not the teaching, not the preaching, but witnessing how Christians live day to day. And because she was uh, part of our friend group, she was surrounded by other Christians, not just myself. And she was interested in, in this Christian thing that she... Uh, through the environment she was brought up and did not have a, a lot of knowledge. Uh, she became, uh, through time, and still is, one of the leaders in uh, the, the Christ for the Jews movement here in, in America. And it was just one of those things. Uh, she saw broken Kevin the Christian and thought it was interesting uh, that I still pursued it in my brokenness. And it, it led into a great faith in her. So that's just... One of the things that... You know, one of the things we've been hearing for decades and decades and decades is that young people only are interested in authentic religion. I heard that when I was a teenager, yeah. and I go to these classes that teach me about how to reach young people. Well, the thing is, it's true. It, the authenticity of how has Christ worked in my life? How has Christ spoken to me? What makes this stuff real? Um, so, as again, there are no, no secrets here. There's nothing new here. It's the authentic working out of your faith in it's being kind to the checkout girl at Publix week in, week out at the supermarket chain down here. And so she basically says, well, why are you so, why do you smile all the time? And the answer is because I know Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
Christ defines Kevin. Kevin does not define Christ. And, you know, that's kind of the message at the end of the day when you watch it unscripted. Uh, we are all fallen, all broken, all sinners. Uh, but this is the season of Advent and the season of Christmas and the season uh, where we get to really investigate uh, inside of ourselves of what we're waiting for and who we're waiting for. And uh, what a season is this. Now, are we going to talk about any news? Indian Besides, corruption, Kevin. Indian corruption is big. What, what else is out there? You sent me some notes this morning. Uh, what, what else is out there, George? Things are getting pretty bad in the Eastern Congo. Uh, the Anglican Church there is doing a lot of work helping combat the Ebola outbreak. In fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury recently visited that part of the world to complement the work of the health workers. And unfortunately, it's all being upended because uh, militant Islam, uh, warlords, led, Islamist warlords, have been attacking health workers and aid, uh, NGO workers trying to combat Ebola in the Congo. And just the day-to-day -day persecution of Christians from the Congo, we had a story about 14 people, a pastor and five little boys were murdered in a church in Burkina Faso, which used to be called the Upper Volta, uh, by Islamist terrorists. And the sad thing is, this isn't news anymore. This is this low-level persecution murder is the norm in across much of Africa these days and in and in Pakistan and places like that. If somebody wants to make a lot of money in the next five years, start a news site that talks about just the news sans Trump, everything that doesn't have Trump or politics involved, to return to news. Uh, everything here in America and certainly in Europe is all about politics now and, and the analysis of politics. There's no more news. Somebody needs to start a news site that is just about news. It has nothing to do with the, the politics of the day. And it would be very popular because people go there to find out what's really happening in this world, in Africa, in Asia, in other places, that has nothing to do with the uh, the press's hatred for Trump and uh, Boris now. So, I'd like to pay tribute to Justin Welby too, which I hardly ever do, <laughs> because I was very impressed at the footage of him visiting those people. Yes. Uh, to begin with, I, I'm afraid I thought some bad thoughts. <laughs> I'm sorry, Justin. I'm sorry, Lord. Um, and what I was impressed by was something I didn't expect, which was the way that the clergy who were there were hugely encouraged by the presence yeah. of the Archbishop of Canterbury amongst them. But it was the clergy were really taking some risks in terms of affection, infection. Uh, and, and showing this this wonderful quality of Christian love, and 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 suddenly Justin Welby turned up, and um, I'm, I'm you know want to say nothing at all about the thinking behind the strategy, but I was impressed by the way I saw the clergy were deeply grateful that somebody they looked up to and respected was respecting them, and I, I thought that was episcopal in in exactly the right way, uh, and as George says that that terrible trouble that they're in. Uh, put an enormous amount of pressure on the Christian community. And it was well, an excellent thing that Justin chose to go there and, and, and lend what credibility his office had to support he, those who were showing such love. Yeah, well, this is, what, this is when the Archbishop does things right. And Gavin's absolutely right. We yeah. need to praise good acts, good actions and good activities. There was no waffling about uh, any issues. There was no politics. There was no climate change. It was just holy compassion being extended by the Archbishop mm -hmm. of Canterbury to the people of the Eastern Congo. 
Ebola is the leprosy of this generation right now where nobody wants to get near it, nobody wants to treat it. Uh, when it happens in a nation like Ethiopia, the leaders are telling their uh, citizens that it's being brought in by uh, these international health groups and that they're helping spread it. And so these false rumors go around and it's making the situation worse. And have Justin Welby go in there and do something very Christ-like is wonderful. And it will help encourage the uh, the priest and clergy there and hopefully the laity for many years to come, knowing that they are unconditionally loved uh, for the work they're doing. And uh, amazing stuff. Something that uh, we had here in the 80s with the uh, AIDS crisis, you know, when the Christians finally stood up and, and started to take a stand and act Christ-like, it really was helpful uh, to those who needed the ministries. We recently discussed a, uh, a five Toronto clergy led by Ephraim Radner at uh, Wycliffe College, the University of Toronto, put out a statement basically saying, can we just have a time out for a generation? We've reached the point where no minds are going to be changed on the sexuality issue. Can't the church just now get back to doing the work of the church and we just take the time not to fight over the intractable divisions between us? And on one level, yes, that's slightly naive, but you see how it can be effective. We're just in Welby without the politics of the Anglican Consultative Council, without any of the, the nonsense that surrounds global Anglican politics. If you put that to one side, the church can do great things in encouragement and support of people. So on one hand, on one level, yes, we may say it's naive just to have a time out, but it can be, it is shown to work from time to time. Mm -hmm. I, I have difficulty with that. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> uh, not, not, because, not because you're wrong, George, but because you are, but it, it's a bit like, um, uh, after, after having been trapped and then mugged, someone brings you a cup of tea before they finish rifling through your wallet. And you say, well, this is a very nice cup of tea. Thank you. For, thank you for the break in the mugging. But you know the mugging is going to go on. I think that the reason I'm, I'm up, I find that difficult is because um, uh, I, I lay most of the, 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 the trouble in society and the church at the feet of heterosexuals. I think the way in which heterosexuals have managed our lives, our, our understanding of sexuality, the whole erotic romanticism of Hollywood, the, 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 the collapse in marriage, the, uh, the, the huge growth in the divorce rates. You know, 98% of this, the population are heterosexual. It's our moral collapse. It just so happens that the, the, the homosexual element of society, which is about 2% somewhere, plus a bit, minus a bit, um, has been making demands for recognition and inclusion. But um, the, the difficulty I have is, is that um, the, it's, um, how do I put it? Uh, we've been pushed so hard on the issue of sexual identity that, that even if, if you stop here, there is, there's still no relief. It's our, our, our backs are against the wall. It's not, going to, it's not going to go away because people are quiet suddenly. Um, what, what we have to do is to find a way of rebuilding society. And I don't think you can rebuild Christian society in the way we were talking of doing it in the parish. I was very moved by, by your emphasis on the parish and the creation of, of a, a Christian community. I mean, the church is so often like a hospital, which is why we have to cut it some slack when it's a bit dysfunctional at the parish level. Um, but, but that can't be done without 
setting aside the assumptions that have been loaded on us that everything is about sex, everything is about power, everything is about me. Uh, just to stop talking about it for, for even for a generation still leaves us in a place where we're paralyzed and have to find a new language and dynamic. Well, I can only speak to my experience and that the experience that I have is my back's against the wall in the Episcopal Church. Yet, uh, we are able to build a community here where we have people coming from no faith. We don't just reshuffle the number of Episcopalians in the county here. We actively bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's because we don't concern ourselves with the sex wars. We concern ourselves with salvation. Our enemy is not the gay activist. Our enemy is not a flesh and blood. So there are thriving churches that thrive in the midst of horrible uh, social pressures. But I don't think that I, I don't consider myself to have my back against the wall. Yes, I'm never preferment in the church because I'm in an unpopular minority group. But what does that I mean? That's of no consequence compared to the to the to the opportunity and the gift of experiencing sharing the mass power of Jesus Christ in my life. I think what we're just what we're describing is is people called to different roles in society. So what you've described, you're absolutely right, is the staple the staple bread and butter life of the Christian community, which should be replicated in as many places as possible. However, there are other responsibilities. You know, one is the Episcopal one, which requires leadership, Christian vision, and above all, the love and care of clergy, so they can love and care for their people. Another is the political one, where 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 Christian politicians in the public space carry their faith into their values and are able to articulate it. Um, the other are the professional ones where people engaged in caring professions and, and, and business are willing to be accountable for. There are different contexts which require, I think, different approaches. Some you can just leave the whole business of sexual identity. Certainly when I was a parish priest on a council housing estate, sexual identity <laughs> wasn't at the top of anyone's list. But there are places where it is. Uh, and one of the problems with the present public debate is there aren't any Christian voices in it. There is there is no one, well, the, not no one. I mean, uh, the two the two most effective voices I think I've heard, are, as I've said before, are Douglas Murray and Tom Holland, neither of whom are particularly Christian, but both of whom are articulating uh, Christian viewpoints. There's an absolute must watch, which is um, there's, there's an organization called Premier Christian Radio, and it runs something, a podcast past called Unbelievable. And they've stolen a leaf out of our book, and they now have a video which accompanies the discussion. And about, uh, we'll put it in the, in the notes, I hope. Sure. About it's a week or so yeah. ago, Tom, Tom Watson, uh, not Tom Watson, Tom Holland took on A.C. Grayling. A.C. Grayling is Dawkins's right-hand uh, liberal uh, philosopher. He's a very clever atheist, right at the forefront of the atheist campaign to rubbish Christianity. Uh, and, and the reason I think people should watch it and enjoy it is because, um, so keeping the discussion George and I have had, George quite rightly says, let's put a primacy on the building of Christian community. Absolutely. And But here's Tom Holland doing what uh, Christian intellectuals should be doing but aren't, which is in the public space having enough information and, and, and the sheer balls to take on people who are profoundly antagonistic to us and tell lies. So here's A.C. Grayling, a very clever philosopher, sitting down there telling lies. For example, I mean, 
he, he lied ad nauseam about Chris Jones destroying classical culture. Right. And Tom Holland goes, goes pink with rage and says, stop telling untruths. It was the Christians who, who made copies of Homer uh, and Aristotle mm. and Socrates. And, and you know, then, then Holland goes on to say things which most people don't know, which is that uh, it, was, it was Gibbon who uh, set about the early myths which say, well, Islam was responsible for the preservation of culture. And Holland says, do you know the first time Islam copied Plato was in 1917? <laughs> it, it had no interest in it whatsoever. And, and, and for those who know, it, most all the copyists under Islam were in fact Christians, many Nestorian Christians, because they were the most educated. So the, the only reason I mentioned it is was it was it was so exciting to see an intellectual who knew what he was doing defend Christianity in the public space against a formidable, gruesome, bad-tempered <laughs> atheist professor that it would encourage most of us, uh, and we'll put it in the notes for others to enjoy it. And I, I think Evan and I are just, I think we're actually going in the same direction. It's just that uh, Gavin's, uh, I'm speaking about creating the community where the things that Gavin talks and talk about can flourish and arise. Yeah. In other words, I w in my particular circumstances, I would not start by uh, seeking to raise up Christian intellectuals. I would seek to build a Christian community in which intellectuals can arise. I don't know if that's a distinction worth making. You no, know, that we've talked about that in the past. That uh, the nature of Christianity is not to make people uh, love the earth; it's to make people know that God loves them, and therefore they love the earth. Um, the society is taking the op opposite approach and trying to get you to uh, love things for no reason whatsoever. But knowing that God's love for you is the the primer to all that is what has escaped in society. I mean, uh, it, on a simple, simple level, it's simple level how it works in, in, in uh, the day-to-day -day parish life is, we needed a treasurer a few years ago. And trying to turn a Christian into a treasurer is a lot harder than finding a treasurer who that you can bring to Jesus Christ. And that's what we did. <laughs> so the old bank president was, uh, was uh, was converted and is the the treasurer um I, I remember about 20 years ago a wonderful christian man i met him broadcasting uh and he'd originally been a lawyer who'd gone to jail for embezzlement and uh, he'd, he'd been too free with his clients uh, money I went to jail and then came out and it was a community on the south coast of england and everyone was very disliked him intensely because your bank manager your lawyer these people your your clergyman you expect probity from these people and, and and everyone knew he was a thief and it was immensely difficult and no one would talk to him uh, until the vicar needed a treasurer so the vicar went to this this lawyer who was really excellent with at hiding figures and said will you be the treasurer for the on the parish church council and the man was astonished and said but no one's talking to me because because of my, my record and, and the vicar said, I, I don't care. We, you know, we need you. We love you. Come and join in the Christian community. And of course, the obvious happened. Uh, he was converted because of the effect that the love of Christ had on him, a sinner whom the rest of the secular community were not prepared to forgive and give a second chance to. So George is exactly right. That's, that's one of the ways in which the kingdom happens and people's lives are transformed. Have we really got all the way around again to unconditional love? I love this about us. This is so cool, a, a circular program. Guys, we've just, on Friday the 13th, recorded 45 wonderful moments of uh, politics and religion. We should probably move on. 
Um, before... actually, Kevin, I would call this the Seinfeld issue. It's a show about nothing. <laughs> show about nothing. <laughs> it is. You know, people, I, I get emails all the time. You guys just like each other so much. Well, yeah, that's half the fun of doing the show. We get to sit down and even if we disagree, people don't know we're really disagreeing because in the end, uh, we agree because, well, we're, we're Christians and our, our love and our our, our, our our, our primary focus is on Christ, and uh, to, you know, as Christians, our our small disagreements just fall to the wayside. It's it's the nature of of being brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, Friday the thirteenth. My wife has a to do list for me to do before Christmas. It's the Carlson household, so I need to sign off here and edit the show. Gentlemen, have a wonderful week. I guess we're going to record on Monday. And then we're going to work out our schedules uh, as the season approaches. One's best to record and not to record. We have breaking news next week for one of us. I'm not going to tell you who. Uh, that will be certainly international news. And uh, yeah, so stay tuned to that. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. I'm Gavin Ashenden. You've been listening to episode 556 of Anglican Unscripted on Friday the 13th. 2019.